This is the Intimacy Podcast, formerly known as Bedroom Confidence for Good Women. You are listening to Bedroom Confidence for Good Women, Episode 19, a discussion about pornography with Brian Willoughby. Welcome to Bedroom Confidence for Good Women, a podcast for my sisters who are ready to rock some serious confidence in the bedroom. I'm your host, certified coach instructor, Rhonda Farr. Hey everybody, what's up? Thank you so much for joining me week after week. I love it when I hear from you and I hear how much you're appreciating this information that I'm putting out into the world. So many of you have said thank you for being a safe place to learn more. And I just want to say wholeheartedly, you are welcome. It is my pleasure to talk about these things each week. I also do want to ask you though, if you're enjoying the content, please go to iTunes and leave me a review. It just helps us get this information out to more and more people so others can enjoy and be a part of what we're talking about. I had somebody contact me recently and we did a consult call and she, uh, as soon as we got on the phone, she was like, hey sister, (laughs) it made me feel so good. I love it. I feel like we are getting to know each other. So I think it's awesome. Okay, so today we're talking about a subject that comes up all the time. (laughs) I've actually already done a podcast about it before, but today I have a special guest, Brian Willoughby. He is an associate professor at Brigham Young University. He studies relationships, and as a part of that, he studies pornography and the effects of pornography on relationships and individuals, and I think that especially if perhaps you have a husband who struggles with pornography use or a child or maybe even you yourself i think that you're going to get a lot of new insight from this episode he talks about things in just a little bit of a different way that i don't think that we always address so i would love for you to give me your feedback whether you agree or disagree there are some things that he says that are a little bit counterintuitive to what we've heard before So let me know what you think. I would love to hear it. So welcome to the podcast today. This is Brian Willoughby, and he has some very important information to share with us. And I think many of my listeners are going to find a lot of insight and answers to questions that maybe they've had for a long time and have been afraid to ask, or maybe they have asked and just haven't found answers that seem to put their mind at ease. So thank you for being here, Brian Willoughby. We appreciate you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So will you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your research and what you do, just so my listeners can be informed of how much time and effort you've put into understanding issues with pornography and shame and how those work together? Yeah. So I'm an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, and uh, I study healthy relationships generally. That's what I spent my career studying is why some relationships make it, some relationships don't, why some people end up married, why some people end up getting divorced. And I studied a lot of the topics that really matter when it comes to relationships. And one of those topics that I specifically focused in on is sexuality and pornography specifically. And so I spent several years researching pornography 
why people get involved with pornography, what the outcomes, how it affects relationships, how it changes relationship dynamics, um, and have, have spent uh, several studies or several years doing studies that have looked at all those different dynamics. Wow, that sounds like exactly what we need to talk about today. So many of my listeners have these issues. And if you don't mind, will you give us just a little bit of insight on what you said? Why do so many people get into pornography? And I almost said men right there. But you know what I'm learning mm-hmm. lately as I work with these women? Sometimes it's the women too, right? And obviously yeah. the kids yeah. and the husbands. Mm-hmm. What have you found in yeah. that yeah, exactly. And, and the first thing to acknowledge here, and, and this this will probably come up several times in our discussion, is that this is one of the most gendered behaviors we see. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's a lot of things where men and women differ a little bit in terms of their likelihood to engage in something. You know, drinking is another good example. Men are a little bit more likely to, to drink excessively than women. Um, but pornography is one of those behaviors where we see huge divides by the gender, which is why we have that kind of stereotype that this is mostly men, because it is mostly men. Now, like you said, there's a significant proportion of women that do view pornography or struggle with pornography on a, on a regular basis. We don't want to dismiss that. Um, but we're, we're talking about most men have some sort of history of pornography and then about 30 to 40 percent of women. So there's a huge divide there. And, and, and back to the, the reasons, one of the, the big ones that kind of cuts across most of this has just to do with the accessibility that we have the pornography now. And this is something that's changed across just one or two generations, that pornography is so easily accessible now through phones and tablets and the internet um, that we didn't have, you know, 20, 30 years ago, at least at the speed that we have now, that it's very, very common for most people to get some exposure to pornography early on in their childhood, early on in adolescence. And that's when it starts for most people. And for most men, for most people that are involved with pornography on a regular basis, um, there might be varying reasons for for why they're turning to pornography, whether it be oftentimes it can be a mood regulator, uh, it can be a stress reliever, it can be you know a, a bunch of different things in terms of that motivation. But for most people, this is something that started fairly early in their life. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I love what you said. It can happen for so many reasons, and there's no one specific trigger, right? For everybody who has an issue with pornography. Um, And then what you said about the just availability. I have four boys and I have boys in middle school and high school. And even if they don't have a cell phone, their friend does, right? Pornography is (laughs) at the tip of the fingers at any given moment. When I was in high school, I'm 40 years old right now. When I was in high school, we had magazines in the locker room for sure. You know, boys were hiding things. Maybe the girls got a hold of them too. But for my kids, it's just completely different. So, yeah. Right. It is. Yeah. The exposure rate by 18 or 19 is essentially 100% right now. Yes. I've shared your quote on that on my podcast before. So now some of my listeners, when they're talking to me, they will say, well, if my kids views, I mean, when my kid sees pornography, yep. So I want you to know you have taught us well, and we believe you on that. Pornography is designed to trigger one of the most powerful processes in our body, which is our sex drive. Um, and particularly when, when so many adolescents or preteens are being exposed to pornography, they're just learning about that part of their body. They're just learning about what those feelings feel like. And so it's a very kind of powerful biological system that's being tapped into 
with pornography that oftentimes, this is something I've pointed out in some of my research writing, is that this is for most kids now, you know, even if, even if they're not a religious individual, even if they're not abstaining from sex till marriage, this is typically most people's first sexual experience now is with pornography. So let's start out with the whole shame game. So we've talked before, my sisters, my ladies on the podcast about how when we add shame, not just to pornography, but anything that is an unwanted behavior, right? When we add shame to it, it often exacerbates the problem. Can you speak to your experience of why that is? I have some thoughts about it, but I'd love to hear from your research and your side, what you found on that. Yeah. Yeah, so this this is tricky because it's kind of a, a double-edged sword that people tend to go on on one end of the extreme or the other. And the one extreme is that if if I'm reacting, if I'm a woman and I, and I find out about my husband or my boyfriend's pornography use, and I have a reaction that elicits this type of shame, you know, you're a bad person. How could you do this? The the issue with that really extreme reaction with shame is that oftentimes the dynamic we typically see, and, and, and a lot of your listeners will probably resonate with this if they had this experience, is that because pornography is not something most couples openly talk about, which is, I'll probably come back to that because that's one of the biggest problems here, is it's usually something I find out about much long, later down the road. So it's not something I find out about when I'm dating you, maybe even the first couple years of marriage, but years down the line, I catch you or something comes up and I find out about this whole history. and Oftentimes, part of what's happening there is the male partner, the husband, is doing what I call co-dip disclosure, which means he's kind of going to say, hey, this happened to me in high school, or hey, I just had this slip up. And what he's really doing is he's gauging reaction to see how are you going to handle this. Okay, so you said toe-dip, right? Toe-dip, like they're taking their toe in the water. Yep, sticking my toe in the water, seeing what the temperature's like. Yeah, I like that. Okay. And if there's if there's this big blow up shame reaction, then what that tends to do is that tends to isolate or, or, or make me feel like, okay, I can't talk to you about this. You're going to freak out. And so then I start hiding. And it's that hiding and secrecy that oftentimes leads to a more compulsive pattern of behavior. And that, that, that can become a very unhealthy pattern for a lot of couples. And so that's oftentimes the concern that we say about the shaming piece is that, well, if there's this big shaming reaction, then that's going to drive this behavior into secrecy. That's going to make things worse. Now, the double-edged piece, though, is sometimes people take that or they'll hear that and say, okay, what I'm supposed to do then as a woman is hide my feelings and just be okay with this and just tell you this isn't a big deal and it doesn't matter and I'm going to be with you no matter what. And oftentimes that has the reaction of now you're not being true to how you actually feel and you're not expressing the hurt or the frustration, or whatever, whatever emotions you're feeling to your partner, well, okay, he might feel really open talking about his porn, but now you're going to start to feel some resentment. You're going to start to feel some frustration. You're going to start to feel things that also aren't healthy for the relationship. And so the, the key here is to find a way for both partners to be open with each other without feeling like we have to go to one end of the extreme of either completely shaming you or I can't say anything about it because that's going to make you feel bad. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're exactly right on. That's what I'm seeing with my listeners. And I just want to add a little plug too. Maybe it's not your husband. Maybe it's your teenage son or even your teenage daughter. And I just want to add a little plug. Whatever the scenario is with the listeners, add in whoever it is that you're dealing with. And what you were saying too about that double-edged sword, you know, 
either we have to go crazy and freak out or we don't say anything at all. I think that's so good. If we enter a conversation with the mindset of, I can speak my mind in a respectful and loving way, or I can be compassionate and I can stick to, you know, how I'm feeling. If we go into it with that mindset, is that what you're basically saying that we can find that middle ground? Yeah. And and part of it is just learning some basic communication skills is that what, what I see people in these scenarios do a lot is use a lot of you language is, well, you made me feel horrible. You make me feel so bad when you do this. You have done, you know, there's a lot of you, there's a lot of blaming that's mm-hmm. going on versus talking about my feelings. Here's how I'm, this is what I'm going through and, and not turning And again, they might be a lot about what your partner is doing, but we find in communications that if I'm just all, everything I'm saying is about your problems and what you're doing, it really shuts down that open communication. Whereas if I can say, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I'm going through, hopefully my partner's doing that too. And that's the other thing with pornography to keep in mind is that oftentimes, and this is really hard because oftentimes when we hear about pornography, particularly if it's a spouse, is we feel like this is because of me. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not doing these things that you want me to do. And that's actually very rarely the case is what we find in research. Um, that a lot of times this is about the spouse him or herself. This is about how they're feeling, their self-esteem, their stress levels. And so giving them the opportunity to say, here's what I'm going through and here's why I think this is happening and how can we come together to come up with a plan to overcome this. Yeah. So you said a lot of things in that and maybe we can unpack it a little bit. Um, Number one, you were talking about the communication and using those I statements instead of the you statements. Are there any other thoughts that you have when we decide to have a conversation about pornography? For example, so when I talk to my kids or when I talk to my clients about wanting to have intimacy conversations with their husbands, maybe I want to change something in the bedroom or maybe I want to try something new. I tell them, okay, we're probably not going to be on a date night on Friday and you start to talk about something that's going to make him feel heated or conflictual or whatever, like finding the right time. Are there any other little tips like that that you could give us about when you're going into a conversation about pornography, when you know that there are going to be some heated emotions or maybe some loaded questions or something like that? Yeah. I'd say another really big tip is to try to slow the conversation down as much as you can. Uh, One common thing we see with couples, and this isn't just with pornography, this is any kind of heated emotional discussion, is that as the conversation continues, it starts to pick up pace because we start to say things not based on thinking, but based on emotion. Start to get what's called reactivity. Mm-hmm. And you really want to watch for that. And, and, and the best way to do that is to make sure you're being really conscious, maybe even talk about this before the conversation starts about taking turns, that when one person's talking, all I'm doing is listening. And when you're done talking, I'm going to take 30 seconds and just think about it. You know, think about what I want to say, think about what I'm feeling. And then, okay, here's, here's what my thoughts are on that. You're just going to listen to me. You're going to pause at the end of that, whatever I say, think about it. So you, you almost do this very methodical, trying to slow down the conversation, because as soon as the conversation starts becoming kind of ping-pong-ish, where I talk, and you talk, and you talk, and now we're kind of talking over each other, that's when you get that escalation that oftentimes is going to end in a a very unhealthy kind of resolution for the couple. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So basically just taking a moment or like a verbal agreement up front. I'm going to talk for this amount of time and I would like for you to take some time to process before you answer and then I will give you the same courtesy and respect back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and part of that is just making it, making the conversation very intentional. Again, you want communication to be in your brain, not in your heart. You want it to be about thinking and processing information and not just reacting to what you're feeling or react. That's when people get defensive. That's when they start to criticize. That's when a lot of the negative things can start to happen in communication. Oh, I like that. You're making it very intentional. You're using your brain, not your heart in that moment, which I got to tell you for women, that's counterintuitive. (laughs) Sometimes Mm -hmm. that's hard for us. Um, but I can see what you're saying. Like when we go into the conversation intentionally, perhaps even with a goal in mind, like maybe tell me what you think about this. But as you're talking, I was thinking maybe we're going to have one conversation today for this amount of time. And our goal is just to understand where the other is coming from. Maybe I I think like you said, it's the setting up intentional times is great. Not doing it spur the moment, not doing it right when I'm feeling angry or when there's a conflict coming up, you know, doing, doing that kind of, Anything that makes it more intentional is great. Or perhaps when you see your husband's phone and there's some notification going off and you just decide to take that moment to check it and you see something and of course you're going to be on high alert and you're like, oh, he's been lying to me. Perhaps you found it for the first time or maybe you're like, oh, he slipped up again. And so emotions are high. What you're saying is that's probably not the best time to go in and say, dude, what's going on? We're going to talk about this now. Right. Even, yes. Yeah. So even though for us as women, we're like, but, but this is so hard and we need to get this out and I can't hold this in. Part of, part of that is also giving yourself enough time to process that emotion is, is you might, like you said, in those scenarios, feel angry, but you might not really understand why am I feeling angry? Am, am I, do I feel betrayed? Do I feel unloved? Do I feel, you know, what, what exactly am I feeling so that I can articulate that to him? Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. A lot of my clients will say, well, if I don't get mad and if I don't hold a grudge against him about this, then I'm letting him off the hook. Then I'm letting him think it's okay. But, but what I like to say, and what I think you just alluded to is you're letting yourself off the hook when you process through it first. And when you can come to terms with it and not feel irate and angry, you're putting yourself in a position where you can feel compassion and love and understanding or whatever it is that you want to feel, right? Right, exactly. Yes, thank you. And then maybe you could go later and have a conversation and say, okay, today we're going to talk about maybe safeguards or solutions or whatever. If you break that up into different timeframes, I think it gives the person who is struggling more, who feels like they're maybe being attacked or whatever, time to process and and not get get overloaded. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, the other thing, yeah, the other thing that that does that I think is good is it avoids this kind of one heated or big conversation and then we don't talk about it again. Is that one of the long-term goals the couple should have on this topic is that this becomes a regular part of our conversation and hopefully not just about pornography, but about intimacy in general. And so breaking it up kind of starts to establish that pattern of this isn't something that's going to go away. This isn't something we talk about once just to get through it. This is, you know, where partnership and intimacy is a big part of our partnership. And so it should be something that we're regularly talking about. I like that so much because when we talk to our kids about sex and pornography, we always say, you know, have an ongoing open dialogue and almost everybody I talk to about that, they totally understand that. And they're like, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. 
And when we think about talking to our husbands about pornography or whatever issue it is that he's struggling with, it seemed a little bit like, are we maybe needling him too much or are we putting too much pressure or too much focus on this issue in our lives? But yeah, right. it makes sense. And, yeah, exactly. And I've had moms ask me in the past too, and, and I'm wondering if this applies to wives with husbands. I'd love to get your take on this. Well, what if we bring it up all the time and they're not even thinking about it? Are we going to trigger them to want to use it again right. by our constant yeah. talking about it? Yeah, I, I, I get that question all the time as well about a range of things, not just pornography, but I have a lot of parents that worry about that, just sex in general. If I keep mm -hmm. talking to my kids about sex, is that just playing on their mind? Um, and I would answer the same way, which is I have never seen a single research study ever that suggests that there's a link between more communication with parents or spouses about sex and actually increased engagement in sex. In fact, all the research suggests the opposite, is that when kids and spouses have ongoing engagement and conversations with pornography, that particularly with kids, they have lower risk-taking behavior, lower porn use, lower engagement in risky sexual behavior, and that couples thrive with that healthy communication. So there's, there's really no concern, that, and part of it is, is helping parents understand that your little convert, even if you're regularly talking to your kids about sex, you know, let's say it's every couple of months, that is nothing compared to what they're getting in the schools, nothing compared to what they're getting, even if you restrict their media, is they're, they're bombarded by sexual messages all the time. And so your, your little input every once in a while is counteracting what they're getting almost every day of their life. Thank you for articulating that so well. That's exactly what I believe too. I always say, if you think they're not already thinking about it, hearing about it, perhaps talking about it at school, you're wrong. If you think you bringing it up is when it's triggered in their mind and that's it, you are so wrong. But you articulated right. that very well. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I'd love to ask you a little bit more about the other thing you said, when wives take it personally about maybe I'm not sexy enough. Maybe I don't satisfy him. And that's why he goes to the pornography use. You said that's almost mm -hmm. never the case. And I would just love to hear you articulate that a little bit more so we can understand better, you know, what is really going on and how do we kind of detach ourselves from the pornography use that our husbands may be engaging in? Yeah. And, and so, and again, I think it's important to distinguish between even if a lot of husbands aren't necessarily using as this kind of direct reaction to my wife's not attractive enough, therefore I'm turning to pornography, that those feelings can still be real. And I want to make sure that we acknowledge that, that that's a very natural reaction that, you know, if I'm a 40 year old woman and my husband is looking at pornography and these are, you know, 18, 19 year olds, and I don't look like that. And I'm never going to look like that again. There is going to be this natural reaction to I'm not good enough. And again, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that and talk about that and talk about those feelings. Um, now, in terms of where this is coming from, again, as I, as I mentioned before, the most common reason why men are using pornography predates you and predates the relationship is because they've used pornography since they were teenagers. That, that is by far the most common that like any any other kind of compulsive or habit type behavior, this is just something that they got used to. And it's something that they do. And, and more often than not, like I said, there's a lot of reasons, but more often than not, a lot of this is triggered by either stress or mood regulation. 
And so we see a lot of guys that turn to pornography when they're having a bad day, when they're stressed at work. You know, there might be a component of, you know, I was I was trying to have some intimacy with you and you didn't, and so I turned this way. But even for those guys, what we find in the research is it's not because you weren't good enough. I would actually prefer you over the pornography, but I was looking for some stress relief through intimacy. I didn't get it from you, and so I've learned that I can get it from this. Um, and so that that's actually important to understand because one of the best intervention tools that we have for men, a lot of what sex therapists are doing, a lot of what educational groups are doing with these men to help overcome this, this habit, this, this negative pattern, is to help them find better outlets for mood regulation and help find better outlets for stress reduction, because that is the most common reason. In fact, it's interesting what the research actually shows us is that men that use pornography oftentimes have increased desire for their life the next day. I've been working on the study right now that was actually showing that on a day-to-day basis. We were doing daily diaries. We were tracking couples every day, and we found that when the men used pornography, they had a spike in desire for their spouse that day and the next day. Yeah, even though it feels like for all these women that this is an alternative to me, like I said, it is almost always, and again, not in every case, but in most cases, this is almost about entirely about what's happening internally with the husband and, and more about, like I said, his mood and stress kind of regulation process. That's so interesting to me. Interesting to me. I had a couple of thoughts about it and I will just run these by you. And if you have any input, uh, I would love to hear it. But so many women are like, well, if I just schedule sex and we have it every day and we have more sex, then he's going to be okay. And he won't have to turn to pornography. But as you probably already know, it never works. It never works. And what you're saying is it doesn't work because it's not about that. It's about the stress relief. It's about the bad day. So I think that's amazing that we can, that you're doing this research that we can tell our, my clients anyway, like, no, we know this isn't about you not doing your job or your wifely duties. Right. Right. Exactly. And the other part that I found so interesting is what you just said actually goes counter to what a lot of other, um, I I don't want to call any names out, but we know there are some rehab programs out there, right? And they're trying to help these men overcome this addiction. And they're saying like, oh, it just ruins your sex life and you won't be able to be aroused for your wife anymore and all these things. But outside of the Latter-day Saint culture, a lot of people use pornography as an arousal tactic, right? And it actually, husbands and wives together use it and say it strengthens their sex lives. So what is the difference? Yeah, exactly. In in fact, in the latest research that I and others have done, we're finding that now about 60% of romantic couples utilize pornography together. And so that's, that's a really foreign thing for my students at BYU, for a lot of religious couples. That's so off the radar that it's weird to think that most couples now in the U.S., most couples in, in, in most countries, actually, most couples are using pornography together, like you said, is, is kind of an arousal tactic. And, and the struggle here is to, to really understand what pornography is doing. Like you said, there's the, one of the most common myths about pornography is that this is going to kill your arousal. This is going to cause erectile dysfunction. This is going to cause all these issues. Um, and there's almost no evidence for it. There's a little bit of evidence, but what you have to keep in mind about that evidence is that almost any research study that shows that is studying men that have such high uses, but these are actually true addicts. These are people that are averaging multiple hours per day watching pornography. That is, you know, 
5%, 2% of all you. This is not most men that are yes. using pornography. What we find from most men, like I said, is that this is linked to increased desire, increased attraction in some cases to my, my partner. But, and this is, this is the important thing I try to help people understand, is that you will find a lot of people out there that then will talk about, well, porn helps my relationship. It helped us. It's something that we feel like connects us together. And what I always, the way I describe this to people is that sexual satisfaction is on a scale from one to 10. What most people are experiencing in the relationship is probably about a seven. And it's because they don't understand that nines and tens exist. Because if I'm satisfied at a seven or eight level, I'm pretty satisfied. I'm pretty happy with what's going on. But what we know that pornography does, because one of the, the things we do know about pornography is that it is in general linked to lower relationship satisfaction, lower sexual satisfaction when the couple is to it. And the biggest reason for that is that what pornography starts to do, right, what it does change in me is how I think about intimacy. Intimacy becomes, if you think about what most pornography is portraying, it's a very selfish type of intimacy. It's a very physically based type of intimacy. It's all about me, it's all about my orgasm. And we know that better intimacy is more than just physical. Anyone that's been in a, mar a good, healthy marriage relationship understands that, well, the physical part is nice, but there's an emotional connection. There's even a spiritual connection. That's what gets couples up into the eight, nine, 10 level of sexual satisfaction. And that's what porn starts to erode for couples is that ability to get up there. And, and that's really important because it helps me have a better understanding and even conversation about pornography if it's in my marriage or if it's in my family is what is this doing? Is it, it changes the conversation from, well, this is going to, this is actually a really important thing for young adults. I get a lot of young adults and teenagers that when they talk to me about porn, their biggest thing is, yeah, I keep hearing my religious leader or my parents or other people tell me how this is going to ruin my life and I don't see it. I'm fine. I'm getting good grades. I have a good relationship and it doesn't resonate with them. But when you switch the conversation to say, well, but here's what porn is actually doing to you. It's, it's hurting your ability to have this kind of relationship that almost all of them want to have. And here's how it's hurting your relationship. Or if I'm a couple and again, sometimes I'm that husband saying, hey, you know, the only problem that porn is creating in my marriage is when we fight about it. So if I just keep it secret, it's not actually doing anything. We're just fine. But helping them understand, yeah, but you're, you're, you're putting a ceiling on what your relationship can be. Your relationship can be this much better if you understand how pornography is changing how you approach intimacy in your life. Such a good explanation. Thank you for sharing it in that way. I think that's going to be, I think that's a different perspective than most of my listeners have been hearing. Um, yeah. And I just want to point this out really quick so I don't get the emails and the comments. When we say that so many other people are using this, I don't think we're saying at all, it, certainly with your follow-up that, yeah, you should go do this because everybody else is doing it and they're okay, right? Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, like I said, if that's that's capping your intimacy. But but it's important because sometimes people outside religious communities, inside religious communities, will say, "Well, it doesn't look like it's doing anything." And it's it's because that what we don't see is we don't see honestly outside of religious communities, we don't see pornography ruining relationships. In in my field, actually, one of the things I'm kind of fighting in my field is that most of the other researchers that study this have shown with some pretty solid evidence that in religious communities that 
religious component is actually what creates a lot of the problems. It, the it shame. creates a lot of fear. It creates a lot of shame. And so they've kind of turned around and say, look, this it's not a porn problem. It's a religion problem. And I've had to kind of fight that and, say, and, and, and argue for this kind of mechanic that I just talked about. It's like, no, yes, there are some unique struggles in religious cultures that can make you know, kind of compound or exaggerate some of these issues, but pornography is capping what relationships can be, that if we take pornography out of the equation, it opens up a whole nother level of what intimacy can be like between couples, and pornography is, is artificially pushing that down. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, the way you explain that. So even in these uh, cultures, non-LDS or Latter-day Saint cultures, it's not ruining relationships usually, but it's also capping that relationship, which it will do in any marriage is what you're saying. Right. We're missing yeah, that emotional, yeah, the, spiritual connection. Yeah. The way I like to describe it is it's limiting these relationships. It's limiting. Ah, oh, so good. Thank you for under, or for explaining that in a way that we can understand it. I think just a little bit differently than perhaps we have before. And one more thing I just wanted to add when you're talking about, yeah, like all these cultures and other countries, so a high, more than half of relationships are using pornography. And then you brought it back to this religious experience. I want to take it back to the beginning where we started with that shame, with that fear, when we're afraid to talk about it and open up. We talked a little bit about like as a wife or as the person who finds out and you're not happy about it, how when you freak out and you start shaming others, how difficult that is. But I think from the religious perspective, we need to also recognize when we shame ourselves, regardless of what anybody else around us says or does, if nobody ever finds out about it, right? When we shame ourselves, right. what, what does that do? Yeah, and, and this is where I think for religious individuals, there's an important distinction between kind of the secular effect and the spiritual effect. And I, I always think it's important for religious people to understand that as I believe myself, that there is always a spiritual cost. Even even if all the research suggested that secularly there was no effective pornography, there's still a spiritual cost, and that spiritual cost matters. Um, and the struggle, like you said, is that in our in our culture, in in most religious cultures and communities, sexual intimacy is a very taboo topic, and because it's very taboo. Again, similar to what we've been talking about with families and couples, is there's a culture of secrecy. There's this sense that I can't tell people about this. The, the, I, I would rather tell people I'm a recovering drug addict, that I did heroin for the last 20 years of my life and I've finally gotten past it, than tell someone I've been struggling with pornography for the last 20 years. Because as soon as I tell someone about pornography, I immediately get labeled. And, and, and part of that, where a lot of that religious culture shame comes from, <clears throat> is up back to these myths, is that there's a lot of myths about pornography and what it does and, and, and just misunderstandings about the addiction process that create a lot of that. And so I, I think a lot of this shame for people from a spiritual standpoint comes from just a misunderstanding of what's going on. Is that I see a lot and talk to a lot of religious, religious individuals and religious men, particularly young adult men, who will come to me and talk about, yeah, you know, I've, I've struggled with pornography and I have a slip up a couple times a year. And then we'll go on to start talking about it as if they were murdering someone every couple months. That's, yeah. that's how they feel like this is such a big deal that I might as well have murdered someone because that's probably the only thing that I could have been doing that is worse than this. And, and a lot of that, like I said, ties back to, to cultural myths and to help them understand that, yes, there, there's a spiritual consequence. And like anything else, 
that we perceive as a sin, there's a process to go through and a recovery and, and, and tapping into the atonement that can help with that. But oftentimes that fear and that shame can short circuit even that process. Yes. And then when we feel that way, then we want to hide and we cut ourselves off from everybody who loves us. Those, well, our wives probably, right? Or our leaders, or if we do want help to change, here's the thing. Some people might not want to change it and they might not want help. But when we hide in that shame and fear, we cut ourselves off from those who want to be close and help us. And we want to share those relationships with. I think that's super hard. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but I can relate to that a little bit too, because when I first decided I was, I got certified to be a life coach and I decided that I was going to help women who struggled with intimacy. I got a lot of comments. People, why are you doing that? Like what on earth? And you know, some things behind my back were said, which was okay. I could handle it. But even me trying to bring light to it, there were some disparaging thoughts and remarks that came my way. Yeah, exactly. And, and part of that is, is, is tied to, particularly I think with pornography, there's a couple other topics where I think this fits, but, but I kind of refer to it as, as this black and white thinking, which nothing in, in, in the gospel, nothing in our world is, is typically black and white, but oftentimes we get stuck in this thinking. And so therefore, if we try to talk about the nuance, try to talk about the real issues that couples are struggling with, like you said, sometimes they can come across as, well, are you promoting pornography? Are you saying that pornography is okay? Are you saying that we should stop freaking out about it? And, 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 and that's, that's the difficulty sometimes to say, no, we're not saying that, I'm not saying that pornography is good. You know, from a spiritual standpoint, from a religious standpoint, like I said, I tell people that, no, it, every single second I look at pornography, is having a spiritual cost in my life. But that doesn't change the difficulty, complexity, and nuance of what this does to relationships and families and couples. And, and there is a lot of gray area and there is a lot of ambiguity that we have to deal with when we try to understand what's happening, not spiritually within one person, but within the complex dynamics of relationships. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like based on your research and all the things that I've learned myself up until this point, we just need to start having a different kind of conversation and we need to start viewing these things a little bit differently. So it's not so shameful. So when a young, a youth is struggling, they can come out and say it and, and get the help they need when they need it or share with others who can understand and walk with them through this. Right. And, and, and understanding, putting that in the context that, you know, within a Latter-day Saint population, we know that 85% of these young single adult men have a history of pornography. So this isn't just a let's have this open conversation so the one or two young men can come forward. No, this, this is having a culture where we can talk openly about this so that almost all of the men can start to talk about it. Yeah. So they don't feel so isolated and evil and like, like you said, wow, the, I just committed this in next to murder here by viewing this pornography. We can just change the way we handle as a whole in our culture. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, thank you so much. I think we have utilized our time together very well today. And I really appreciate you being willing to come on and talk about this for me, for sure, I think things have been discussed in a way today that I haven't considered before, and I think it will be the same for my listeners. Is there anything else you'd like to add as we close? Um, no, just thanks for having me on. 
All right, sister or brother who's ever listening right now, I have found out recently that several men are listening to my podcast too, which I love. My brother from another mother, if you're listening, we're grateful to have you too. Let me know what you think about this week's interview with Brian Willoughby. I know some things were presented in a different way than we're used to talking about them, but I think it's so important that we open up our minds, that we open up this dialogue, that we start thinking about these things in a little bit of a different way, that we start talking about these things a little bit differently than we have before. If you're one of the sisters out there who is struggling as your husband is working through his own pornography use, make sure you uh, get an appointment with me. Get on my calendar if you need some help navigating it in a way that doesn't feel so personal to you, in a way that allows you the time to process all of your feelings and emotions and gives him the space to do what he needs to do. If you're one of my brothers out there who needs a little bit of help talking to your wife about these things, processing through maybe the shame or the guilt make sure you schedule an appointment with me. It's free. I would love to see if I could help you. Email me at coachwithrhonda at rondafar.com or go to rondafar.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on talk to me. All right, everybody, let's move forward with confidence that we can get through hard things in our marriage. Move forward with confidence that you can navigate these issues even when it comes to pornography and things that you hoped you would never have to face. You can do it.